Welcome to The Naked Podcaster. Get ready to hear the story of someone strong enough to bear it all. The Naked Podcaster is a representation of freeing yourself, giving you permission to be real in all your quirkiness, baggage, struggles to success, and tragedy to triumph. I'm so excited you're joining the journey. Your past doesn't define you, but it does lead you on a path to today. Let's get naked. Welcome to The Naked Podcaster. This is Jen Taylor, and today I'm here with Patricia Young. How are you, Patricia? I'm really tired and depleted, to be honest with you, but as we talked before we started recording, I'm putting on my game face, and we're going to give this a good show. You know, I think being depleted is the game face that's the good show, so uh, no apology necessary there. You're, and that's funny that I just said that without, this was not on purpose, but your website is unapologetically sensitive, correct? Absolutely. So I don't have to apologize. Nope. We're unapologetic about it. Um, I'm excited. I can totally pronounce your name. <laughs> <laughs> Website I stumbled over a little bit, but I, I am fascinated by what you do and your story. And it's so relatable. Even though it's not relatable directly to me, I have kids. It's really, really like I really get it when you talk about it and your website, which will all be posted. But tell me about what you're doing now. I know um, you're licensed as a therapist. Yep. Okay. So jump in and tell me what unapologetically sensitive is about. Well, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. That's how I was trained. Within the last couple of years, I learned about the trade of being a highly sensitive person. And when I learned about that, that's really where I made a shift in my practice. And so I ended up starting a podcast called Unapologetically Sensitive, which is about the strengths that we have because of our sensitivity. It comes with challenges. But so much of what I do for my podcast and for my work, I think, is highly sensitive people. You know, we're only 20% of the population. It's a research trait. It's something we're born with. It's not due to trauma. So we tend to feel like we're misfits. We don't fit in. We feel like something is wrong with us. We've gotten that message of you're too sensitive, you're too emotional, you're too dramatic, you're too picky, you, you know, too, whatever it is. So when I learned about the trait of high sensitivity, I created a shift in my practice. And after doing the podcast and having people reach out to me and learning more about coaching, I've done a shift into doing coaching so that I can work with more people. But what I'm finding is, you know, I, we're, we're wounded healers. And so that's why I'm a therapist. That's why I'm doing coaching. And as I'm growing in my process, when I first learned about high sensitivity, I really needed to feel all the feelings that weren't okay to feel because I buried that stuff. And as I've done my own healing work, I've kind of moved to the next stage of like, let's get some tools and start moving which is why I shifted to coaching because I feel like I can lead people a little bit quicker. We can get some tools. We do the feeling work. And I'm, I'm struggling. You know, I'm working through my own how to language the difference for me between therapy and coaching. There is no universal agreement. It's not my intention to piss anybody off if you're a therapist and what I'm saying you do is coaching. Like, I don't want to start an argument. What works for me is as a therapist, it felt like I really needed to let clients be where they were at in that space, create a holding space for them and to not move them, that it was up to them to figure out when they wanted to move. And so if a client needed to talk for an hour, I let them talk. As a coach, I'm much more directive. I'm in there. What do you want to work on? And I feel like we make movement and pro progress. And, and that's, it's, it's exciting for me because I really want to people. I want to teach people tools, validate, normalize, educate, but also get people moving. 
That was a really long answer. That was a great answer. So I do have a couple questions. When did you, you grew up and were a highly sensitive person. We can talk about that. But what the question I'm wondering now is when did you learn that that was something that existed and that it's only 20%? Because you must have felt alone. I I always felt like something was wrong with me. I was kind of born very old. You know, it's like, I don't think I was a very fun child and I always got along better with adults than I did with kids and was very serious and thought a lot. It's interesting. I first learned about introversion. I'm not an introvert, but I thought I was. A lot of the memes that you see about introversion, what Susan Cain has written about in her book, Quiet, The Power of Introversion, blends the traits of highly sensitive people with introverts. So many people that are introverts read what she says and they think that they're introverts, but they're also highly sensitive people. So I thought I was an introvert and then I learned about the trait of high sensitivity and I'm actually a highly sensitive extrovert, which looks very different than your non-highly sensitive extroverts. Yeah. I imagine that it would look a lot different. Yeah. Yeah. Was it, I mean, I can imagine it being a huge relief when you feel like a misfit and then you find out, oh no, you're actually perfectly fine just the way you are. You know, I, I dislike labels for the most part, but I have to say that learning about the trait of high sensitivity validated so much of what I'd experienced because it wasn't now that I was too sensitive or that I was emotional or that, you know, certain things are really hard for me. I get overwhelmed and overstimulated to see that it was a research-based trait with all of these things just made me feel like I could settle into it. And then, you know, my tagline is that, um, (laughs) I can't even remember what my tagline is. (laughs) Activity is nothing to apologize for. It's our superpower. And what I believe, this isn't mine. I I got this from somebody else, but you know, what's wrong with us is really what's right with us. And I think as, as highly sensitive people, what we think are our worst characteristics really are our greatest strengths. And I think when we learn about the trade and can lean into it, they really are our superpowers. I think that's true of everyone. Our, our, yeah. Yeah. So it's nice to lean in. And I don't necessarily like labels either. Although sometimes, like I mentioned, I have a son who's autistic. Well, that's a label, except it helped me make sense. Right. What was happening. Cause I had the ability to learn Right. about it and understand it more and be more compassionate and empathetic um, and what the strengths and weaknesses were and how to balance those out. So in that sense, the good thing about labels is that it does give us the opportunity. Right. And with high, yeah. high sensitivity, one of the things is that we get overwhelmed and overstimulated very easily. We've got nervous systems that are really finely tuned. We pick up on things that other people don't. So things like bright lights and loud noises, lots of stimulation, scratchy clothing, strong smells really impact us. And so if I feel like what's, what the fuck is wrong with me that everybody else wants to go to a party and a loud venue and I don't, when I know I'm highly sensitive, it makes sense why that doesn't work for me. And I can own that as So if I'm going to get together with people, it's going to be a small group. It's going to be not in a noisy restaurant. It's going to be somewhere quiet where the atmosphere is really soothing so that I can really enjoy those deep connections with people. But if I don't know I'm highly sensitive, I just keep thinking, what the fuck is wrong with me? Because I can't do what the other 80% of the world is doing. Which makes total sense. And I completely understand that. Let's... I love that you're a therapist and that you're doing this and then that you switch to working with highly sensitive people. Right. And I, so I, I do want to mention something else because it's my perception 
that a lot of times in therapy, you're looking back at the past, but in coaching, you're trying harder to move forward. You know, I hear that a lot. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go. I hear that a lot. And, and I, I really want to disagree with that because I think that you can do both with therapy and with coaching. I have not found a definition of either that really sits well with me. And I don't think that, that that's accurate because with coaching, there are times when you need to look from the past to see what's moving, you know, where you came from and where that messaging came from to bring it into the present to change it. And with therapy, you're not always going to stay stuck in the past. You are going to be looking to the future and moving forward. So I just don't think we have a very good definition for those people like me that want to have a nice little box to put everything in. Sorry. <laughs> well, I'm similar to that. The box, well, it's more making sense of things or being able to differentiate things. But I like what you said about coaching where you can help more people and move more quickly. So it doesn't have to be a definition necessarily. Let's go back in time. Tell me, sure. tell me about, I, I don't know where the struggle started or began. So jump in and share that. Um, it's funny. I'm tired today and I can already feel that my defenses are down and I'm okay with that, but I'm just, you know, I'm all about naming what's going on. Um, I was raised by a single mom who was incredibly anxious. She's a highly sensitive person, but we didn't know it. And the way that she managed was to make rules. So I joked that the rules had rules. And that's how she organized her anxiety. And she could not tolerate my feelings. So if I needed to get angry or upset, I was allowed to, you know, I had to go to my room at a blackboard in front of my door. And I was allowed to write my feelings on the blackboard. And, you know, for a young child, that's really ridiculous. My dad left when I was five, and they thought that it would be better to not fight in front of me. So one day my dad packed up and he left. And I had very spotty contact with him. And, um, you know, I was an overweight kid. I, I really think that without having tools to know that my feelings were okay and how to self-soothe and to be taught to kind of self-regulate, to know how to manage my own emotions, it's not uncommon for sensitives to struggle with stuff. So food is my drug of choice. And, you know, I was on the chubby side and my dad had an issue with that. So as a kid, you take two data points and you connect them. So mine was, if I only lost weight, my dad would love me. So, you know, feeling like I wasn't good enough for my dad and he was not very present. He was very critical. And then, you know, my mom having tons of rules, I learned to be very compliant and, and was really a people pleaser. I learned how to get my sense of belonging from figuring out what people need, which is a highly sensitive trait. We're great at figuring out what people need to be comfortable. And that's how I got my sense of connection. And, you know, when my mom didn't have a boyfriend, I was her partner and I was really good at it as a kid. And then when she had a partner, if he liked me, I was part of the mix. And if he didn't, then, you know, I was kind of relegated back to the role of child. So it gave me some great tools and I kind of missed having a childhood which from a parent perspective is kind of sad. Yeah. And when I met my husband, I didn't want to have kids because I did not want to recreate what happened with my mom. So uh, I've been married almost 22 years. This is a second marriage for me, but I spent a lot of time in therapy making sure that, you know, I was not going to make the same mistake with this marriage. And I sat with a baby bug for about a year before I even had kids, didn't tell my husband because I wanted to be really clear that I was going to be able to do it differently. And, you know, I have to say I've got twin boys that are 19 and they're amazing human beings. I've been a very imperfect mother and I've made lots of mistakes, but we talk about it. 
overall and very imperfect mothers. If there's a yeah. quota of daily fuck ups, you know, like, oh, yeah. I can exceed that, you know, no problem. Well, and I think that the gift is, you know, with our kids, we don't want to be perfect parents. We want to be imperfect and we want to model to them how we do repair work when we make mistakes. And I'll tell you, I lost my shit with one of my kids a lot and it meant having to go in and doing repair work. I'm not saying the goal is to screw up with your kids so you do repair work, but repair work is pretty powerful. It is, and we're human. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't want anybody to be perfect. It would be so incredibly robotic and boring. Yeah. And, okay, so you felt like that as a child. Was there ever any contact with your dad or resolution or with your mom? My mom and I have done a tremendous amount of healing work. We um, added onto our house. She's got her own place. It's attached to ours. When I had my kids, she really showed up, I think, for my kids the way that she wanted to show up for me. And she was here part-time, you know, to help me take care of my kids. And so we've done, we've, we've done repair work. I really love the relationship that I have with my mom. My dad was pretty spotty, and as an adult, when my kids were five, so in 2005, we flew out to Colorado. We, I reconnected with him, and um, we bought our plane tickets and got you know, a reservation to stay somewhere, and then he changed his mind, and it was just devastating to me. You know, in my mind, this is, this is my father. Even though he wasn't very present, he has a much bigger role in my life than I do for him in his life. And so, you know, a lot of the wounding that I have is around abandonment, feeling like I'm too much, feeling like I'm too needy. You know, those come that too much and too needy is from my mom feeling overwhelmed that she couldn't manage my, my very average needs. And a lot of abandonment because of my dad, you know, literally leaving and not being able to show up. And the gift of that is that it gives me such an incredible awareness and sensitivity with my clients so that I can often name what I imagine is going on for them and then ask for a reality check. And so it gives me just great sensitivity around that. And my wounding still shows up in close relationships today. It doesn't grab me by the tail, but like I can tell you, my best friend, Laura, is a therapist. We use an app. We talk a couple times a day. And, and I will say like, you know, I'll, I'll look and see like, okay, I've, this is like the third time I've contacted you today and you haven't contacted me. I said, I, you know, I'm feeling like I'm being too much. And she will come back and reassure me or we'll spend time together and we'll leave and she'll call me and say like, I feel like I talk too much. And the reason why I share this is, you know, we're two very skilled therapists who've done our work and this stuff still comes up for us. And when we have relationships that have a level of honesty and intimacy in them, we can talk about it, but I can see how those defenses come up where the feeling will come up and we just dismiss it. And sometimes we need to do that to function, but I, I really think that the goal for me, the depth that I have in my relationships and that level of honesty is what makes my relationships rich and deep and that I can show up and say anything that's going on in these safe relationships. And I'll do this with everybody. Correct. No, you wouldn't do that with everybody, but it is really important. And I think it's important to point out that, and I've said it before on here, nothing is a one and done. There's no magic pill. There's not a, there's not a fairy godmother waving a wand over your head and, you know, you're going to have pumpkin moments. <laughs> you're going to have moments that you're still working through your stuff. It's, it's not a destination. It's a journey. But I do know, well, I love what I heard about being a teacher. You just have to be a chapter ahead of the class. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So we're all working through something. We're all struggling with something. That's, again, what makes us so human. 
but um, if as long as you're a chapter ahead of the class, then you're good. Yep. Well, and I, for me, I think it's really about the process. That's really how I work as a coach is it's about the process and what about the attempts at communicating and making mistakes and pivoting and learning. It's not about getting a goal, having a straight line to it. It's about all the missteps and what we learn along the way. And when we're willing to be in the process and being vulnerable and risking and getting hurt, that's, it's messy, but that's where the magic is. It's not about learning all these tools so that we have a happy, blissful life, because no matter what, life is going to throw shit at us. And that, you know, we have emotional responses and we feel hurt and angry and disappointed. The goal is not to have those things. It's to learn how to feel them, move through it and do what you need to do to, you know, have the feeling and, and take the steps that you need to take. It's not to not have those feelings. I wouldn't trade the feelings. I, I think it's that I, I have a daughter right now who's 17 and just broke up with her boyfriend today. So it's been oh. a rough day, right? Okay. Mama, so yeah. your heart is hurting. Uh, well, mine is, and I, I hear and see her heart hurting. Yeah. And it just reminds me, and more probably for someone who's highly sensitive, when you're going through that, for her right now, it is consuming yeah. her life and consuming her feelings. And you can't imagine stepping past that or dating someone else. And now you and I, who aren't teenagers with a breakup <laughs> anymore, know that this too shall pass. And, but it's that complete lack of control and that, that just devastating feeling. Yeah. And, you know, I hugged her and I said, I can buy chocolate cake. It does fix a lot. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I can hug you and love you and we can, we can do all that, but you just have to move through this. And mm -hmm. I know, and you know, and with your clients and with yourself that moving through, it makes you a much better person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when you're, you know, a young person and those feelings are running high, it feels like it's the only thing. And, and what, what I really believe happens, I'm not a researcher, but when we have very strong emotions, the brain wants to make up a story to match why we're having strong emotions. And I think that's where it gets dangerous because what I'm imagining is, you know, being that age and thinking no one's ever going to love me again. I'm fundamentally flawed. You know, this is the worst thing I can't ever trust. I mean, whatever, whatever our history brings in, having those strong feelings makes it really challenging. I want to bring up what you just said about we make up a story in our head. And I, I love that. And I, when I be, first became aware that that's something we sort of innately do as human beings, when something happens, we start creating the story. Right. Um, and the story in my mind is usually, it's like fear of the unknown. The, the actuality is probably not as bad. And even if it is, at least we know it's the real Thing. Mm -hmm. But I, you, we've talked about, we talked about this before we started and I really want to use that again because, um, I, I mean, I think it's a good thread to follow throughout this interview because it's something that you have, you said before mm -hmm. about, you know, when you're coaching clients, mm -hmm. you want to jump in and share that just a little bit right now. Sure. It's a term that Brene Brown talks about, the story that we make up in our head. And as highly sensitive people, we pick up on so many cues in the environment and with other people that 
other people don't pick up on. It's interesting. I've done some online groups where, you know, it's kind of Brady Bunch style and I'll be looking at one person and I can totally tell that something's going on and nobody else seems to have a clue that something's going on with them. And I think that most of us kind of think everybody else thinks and processes the way that we do. So the gift for me about learning about the traits of sensitivity is that I pick up on all kinds of shit that nobody else does. And so it's not uncommon. Well, we talked about this. So I've been feeling really depleted and I've had clients the last couple of days. And so I've just said at the beginning of the session, I need to let you know I'm feeling really depleted. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. There are times when I yawn a lot. I'm real fidgety. I will tell a client at the beginning of the session that that's what's going on with me. Because that way, if I don't do that, they're going to see that my energy is low. They're going to see me yawning. They're going to see me fidgeting. And if I don't own it, they're going to think they're boring me. They're going to think that, you know, they're going to make up a story in their head about why I'm not responding energetically like I normally do. It creates a tremendous amount of safety for people and it gives them permission to be however they are. You know, I'm in a lot of online groups and therapists will talk about how they try and hide their yawn if they have to yawn during session. Just like, what the fuck? We're all human and we yawn. And I have a client who, you know, if I yawn, HSPs have more mirror neurons. So whatever's going on around us, we tend to pick up. So if, you know, you yawn, then I'm probably going to yawn. That's about mirror neurons. And we just talk about it in session. And, and what happens if I, if I have a client and I yawn and I think about not yawning, guess what I'm going to be doing? So again, with my clients who just own it, and then it's like, if I need to yawn, I'm going to yawn. I'm a human being. Well, you've yeah. said the word yawn, and I yawn twice. Like <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think I have many traits of a highly sensitive person, but I think we, we, we do make up the story in our head. So yes, if I was used to you responding a certain way and I got on, I think it's innately human and unfortunately especially in our society we assume that it's me yeah if you weren't responding i would be like she does she not like me today am i saying something it's all about us yeah yeah and it really is not all about us right right and uh, i mean i remember my husband and i having a conversation and i said in that situation it's either because of a or because of b and he's like, it's not because of ether. And I'm like, it has to be. And he goes, no, it's because of C. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know C existed. Right. So in my mind, I was creating a story about the, in this conversation of like, if you feel this way, it's because of these two things. And he's like, it's because of this third thing you never even imagined. And if we don't pause in our story, and I laughed so hard. I was like, oh my gosh, there's a C? Like who knew? Right. Right. But we automatically make assumptions because we're constantly creating this story in our head. Right. It's from either things that we're observing in the environment. If there's lack of information, if feelings are running high, we just tend to make up a story in our head. And and it's a natural thing to do. And what really works is to say, this is a story that I'm making up in my head. Or I can ask like, hey, I'm noticing something going on. Is there something going on with you? And it could be that, you know, you're tired and depleted or you just had a fight with someone or, you know, you're wearing a bra that binds and, you know, you're unhappy. I mean, we never know, but if we don't ask, then we really never get that information. And there are times when I've noticed something with my husband, I'll ask him, he says no, and I don't think that he has the awareness of what's going on, you know, and, and so it's going to be different in every situation depending on the context, but we can trust that we're picking up on something, but the meaning that we attach to it may not be accurate. Absolutely. 
So my husband's more highly sensitive than I am. And he'll say that. He's like, you look tired and you never look tired. Or something like that. And I'm like, I felt fine right up until that very moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, there are times when, because I know he's more in tune than I am, when he says something, I just kind of stop and I look at him and I think, well, I'm going to have to percolate on that a little. I, I, I felt fine, but I know he picks up on stuff that I don't. Yeah, yeah. So I look inwardly and I think, okay, now, and sometimes you don't recognize it at all. And sometimes it's just an awareness. It's, there's no, there's no answer. There's no magic cure. There's nothing right. wrong. Right. You have a puppy on your lap and it's so, it's very, very cute. Sorry. <laughs> Nobody Gracie. else knows that. <laughs> this is Gracie. She sits on my lap. If she's not, she's barking or making noise and I take her collar off. So if I have to set her down, she scratches, you don't hear it. Yep. Yep. Nope. <laughs> I love it. No one else can see that. I want to go back a little bit because you're growing up as this kid with the mom and the dad and that situation. So explain to me what it was like to be in school and what friendships were like, and then what dating was like. Well, I, I think what saved me is I have a really strong need to connect. And I always had at least one best friend. And I tend to seek out friends that were really nurturing, I think, because I didn't get the nurturing that I needed from my mom. You know, as a kid, it's like, and this is a carryover to the adult. It's like, I want to be the baby. You know, I want to be the one that's taken care of. I want to be the one that's nurtured because I just didn't get enough of that. And, you know, as a kid in elementary school, I was getting myself up, packing my lunches, doing my own laundry, very independent. And it's interesting with my kids, you know, I want them to be independent and my husband is way more nurturing than I am. So it's been a balance for us to try and figure out because, you know, he's like, my mom did everything for me and I turned out okay. And I'm like, you need to start letting them be independent. But anyway, so having, I always had a best friend. I really had a strong need to connect. I think that the need to um, people please probably saved me. You know, I was a rule follower and need to people please. But what happened is I acted in, you know, many kids will swear and break things and get into trouble on the outside. You know, overeating was a way that I could act in, self-soothe. It hurt me and nobody else. So it's kind of like I could put on a smile and connect with other people, but internally didn't really have that way of connecting. I really didn't date until I was in college and had a couple of, you know, good long-term relationships. Uh, well, as healthy as I could have. When I was, it took me 14 years to get my bachelor's degree. I put myself through college. I didn't know I was highly sensitive, so I could never take a full load. I didn't realize that I had perfectionism. So if I didn't think I was going to get an A or a B in a class, I would drop it. I didn't realize that. I changed my major a million times. So I graduated, I was probably in my 30s by the time I graduated. And then I did go to graduate school and got in and got out in two years. You know, so I kind of had a very long, circuitous road. Um, <laughs> I just totally went like, so how does that connect? I don't know. Can you ask me a question? Because I kind of lost my train of thought. To, to dating people. That's all right. <laughs> We're human. I love it. <laughs> um, so I don't think I had really bad relationships. My first marriage was somebody that I knew when I was a kid. He was five years older. And I kind of just wanted him. And it was a very tumultuous relationship. And it wasn't until I started dating my husband that I didn't realize that relationships didn't have to be as hard, that you know, my husband, I had issues, but it was definitely not as tumultuous. But when I was 30, I moved into a recovery home for my eating disorder. And we did morning check-in where you'd have to say two things that you were feeling. And I couldn't even tell you what a feeling was. And we had contracts in the house. And, you know, 
I learned to use words as a way to keep people away. That's, that's what was acceptable in my family. So I had a contract where I could speak in one sentence and we'd have dates with people on Sunday that were in the community for recovery. And so I had a date with someone I didn't know and I could speak in one sentence because I, I didn't know how to trust. I didn't know what my feelings were. I didn't know how to connect. So I did a lot, a lot, a lot of therapy. So I have those skills now, but I, I at age 30, I didn't have, I'm 55, I'll be 56 uh, next month or this summer. So yeah, I got a late start. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with a late start. That's no. So tell me about the eating disorder. Cause you've, you've touched on it a little bit. I completely get the self-soothing. Yeah. Um, and that I, I understand what you were doing. How did it turn into an eating disorder for you? And what made you turn yourself into the clinic? Um, you know, I, I've always been really upfront about the things that I struggle with. I'm an overeater, so I'm, that's, that's what it looks like for me. What I got, I wanted recovery, and it, it was to the point where it, it just felt so out of control, and I never really got into drinking because I thought if I did the same things with alcohol that I do with food, I'd be dead. And, um, you know, I can remember having food and falling asleep, having cookies on my bed and waking up in the middle of the night and eating. And, you know, because I'm not a purger, you have to manage how much you can eat because you get full. And if you're not purging, you know, you, you got to balance how much you can eat before you get too full and sick. What I got out of the recovery home, I lived there for nine and a half months. It was the first functional house that I lived in where we had communication and rules and really learning how to have boundaries and talk about my feelings. So that was really, really helpful. I still struggle with food. I think it's gotten much, much better. And when I have a lot of emotional things going on, I still tend to use food. And, and I think, I don't think even people that don't have eating disorders use food for fun and for comfort and overeat from time to time. I think that's just part of normal eating. And it's still something that, you know, I struggle with. There's nothing wrong with struggling. What, yeah. what was the final straw where you decided that that was the best avenue? Well, I think I'd seen some other people go through the recovery home that I did. And it's like, I really wanted that. I wanted that freedom for myself. And I, I do really well with structure. I think highly sensitive people, we need to have a certain amount of structure without rigidity. And there's that whole balance of going back to, you know, what I grew up with where the rules had rules and finding that balance of, is this, structure that serves me or is this a way of not being aware of what I need internally and defaulting to external rules? It's always a juggle. I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong because sometimes we need to have those rules to kind of get us moving until we can go more internally and intuitively to figure out what we need. How was it to really embrace your feelings? I mean, that must have been a lot. Well, it's funny because when I... the the therapist that I saw in the house, I saw her for years afterwards. I learned some amazing things from this therapist. And there were some things that, you know, just because of her orientation, but I can remember being in therapy and thinking about what I was going to eat when I'd leave therapy. I'd get so dysregulated in therapy. She didn't tell me to talk about it. I didn't know to talk about it. Like to have this dynamic going on and then I would leave therapy and I would go binge. And I can remember talking to a friend who didn't have an eating disorder and he would talk about going and eating ice cream after therapy. So I make it a point to talk with clients about, you know, are there things that you're doing after sessions because things are coming up and we're not talking about it. It's just about having an awareness, but 
there's this thing of, you know, when we work on stuff that doesn't work and we don't have new tools, it's going to trigger behaviors that things that we've learned to self-soothe or regulate that are adaptive or maladaptive that we need to learn to do differently. But until we have new tools of, you know, new ways to deal with it, we're, we're going to go to those things when we're learning. What were your new tools? What new tools replaced or helped? I think being able to, you know, feel my feelings, to be able to sit with them, to find self pe- safe people to talk to about them, and then finding activities that are self-soothing. And that can be something like going for a walk or doing yoga. Sometimes it can mean, you know, finding a good movie on Netflix, listening to music. I mean, all kinds of things. And then anything to an extreme, we also need to look at. But I think self-compassion is the most important because we're going to do it imperfectly. And so just being able to have self-compassion for the part of us that just wants that sense of connection and belonging and to, to feel seen and heard. Was it really hard for you when you got in touch with, because it's a lot to get in touch with 30 years of feeling. Yeah. Was it hard for you connecting with people after that? Because you know you really wanted to and you kind of did. But how different was it for you afterwards? Hmm, that's a good question. I, I have to think. What I'm, I'm just going to talk and think at the same time. Yeah. My best friend, Laura, now, we knew each other at that time. She had gone through the recovery home before I did, and we were best friends before I went through the house and afterwards. And then because of this therapist, we stopped talking for 20 years. And yeah, there was, there was what felt like an ethical issue that came up that now looking back, there was no ethical issue. But the therapist gave her an ultimatum. I gave her an ultimatum and we stopped talking for 20 years. We live five blocks apart. We did for this whole 20 years. And so she was in my wedding. You know, I ended up having twins. She got married, had two kids. We missed all of this stuff. And then we reconnected within the last few years. We did a podcast episode about it. Um, but I think I still had the ability to connect and be vulnerable. I, I think, honestly, vulnerability has always been... Um, a strength of mine, even with the wall of words, I think that that vulnerability was already there. That's awesome. Actually, that's great to have gone through that and realize that even though you were struggling in this area, you were actually, you were still doing, you were still connecting. Yeah. I I have a, I have a really, really strong need to connect and I'm really good at connecting. I don't do chit chat really well. I don't like networking things. I don't like social activities. When my kids were in school and they'd have exhibition night or back to school night, it made me want to poke my eyeballs out. You know, I like one-on-one deep conversation, but just chit chatting with people, I I don't have a lot of bandwidth for that. Yeah, I hear, I, well, I understand that. A lot of us don't. Um, I'm, I'm the ultimate extrovert and I feed off of people's energy and I'm not highly sensitive. So networking events for me are like energy. It's like, it's like charging the battery. Right. (laughs) And I hate chit chat. Yeah. I I don't like it. So for me, I go in and I see people that I've already connected with where there's something there and I just want to recharge off of them. Yeah. Because I lose my mind with the chit chatting. So I, I feel you. <laughs> you learned that not only was being highly sensitive, not something negative, but mm-hmm. it was also a superpower that shifts years a lot. There's a lot of negativity in society anyway. And people that are highly sensitive, and I know from having a couple of kids that way, it's really hard not to be critical. And I think a lot of that is the 80% of us don't necessarily understand. 
So I'm yeah. glad at least I had an understanding when I had kids of, of what it was or why it was. Um, but still, it can be tough if you're one of the 80% to navigate that with the 20%. So when you think about, oh, I don't have to apologize for it. Now it's actually a superpower. That's an enormous shift. It is. It is. Dive into that one for me because you had to learn it in order to teach it. Well, there are two things. Oftentimes what happens is highly sensitive people have wounding. And what Dr. Aaron's research shows is that if a child grows up in an environment with a which, which she calls is a difficult child. My interpretation is if you are highly sensitive and one of your parents isn't highly sensitive, that's enough to create wounding because the child's going to be thinking about things or feeling things and the parent is you know, going to say, don't worry about it. You know, let it go. It's not a big deal. As a child, we learn about ourselves through our feelings and if we don't get that mirrored, we think something's wrong with us and that's where kind of that disconnect. So higher rates of anxiety and depression. So what I find is that oftentimes the non-highly sensitive people and the highly sensitive people that have wounding hate the traits of sensitivity because of the wounding. So you've got to deal with the wounding first. You pull that out. And then we're just talking about strong emotional feelings about things, deep thinking, processing, and learning how to change having emotional reactions into having emotional responses and kind of, I don't know that taming is really a very appropriate word, but learning how to have those feelings and those experiences and to be able to contain it as opposed to feeling like it's, you know, I, I had that analogy of like having the, I have to find another animal friendly analogy. I'm not going to do that. Um, feeling like your emotions are taking you for a ride. That would not be a fun, I mean, I can relate to that. Yeah. And we've yeah. all had the breakup where- yeah. We've all had, everybody has had something happen where you feel like a train of emotions has just run you over. Sure. Well, and I think that for highly sensitive people, we have a really strong sense of social justice, what feels fair, what feels equitable, because we're very conscientious. We pay attention to details. We have very high expectations. And so for me, I get disappointed a lot. For many years, I was told to not have such high expectations. And you know what? It's just how I'm wired. So I'm going to be disappointed a lot. So when I find myself kind of banging my head against the wall, it's like, oh, I had an expectation I didn't realize. I'm disappointed again. Okay, so now what do I need to do? Instead of hating the trait of feeling frustrated and disappointed. And I think the truth is most people are so afraid of feeling angry, frustrated, disappointed, and hurt. We we're almost always feeling those things. I, I use the analogy of a beach ball that like we're kind of holding underwater saying, it's okay, it's not bothering me. But all that energy that we take to push that stuff down, we're so afraid that we're going to ask for something and not get that need met and then have this huge reaction of frustration or anger or disappointment. We're already trying to suppress those feelings. And if we just learn that it's okay to have the feelings and the reactions and then move on, it takes far less energy than trying to keep everything underground all the time. It's like a volcano in my yeah. mind. Just, yeah. It's just simmering. And my son who's autistic, that's very highly sensitive. I, that's what I remember talking to the therapist about. You, you have to understand that this is all there. Mm -hmm. He's just a volcano right now. Right. That, that's nothing against him. It's mm -hmm. not like he's, he's trying to conform and he's just boiling. On the, he, and he shouldn't have to. Right. So appropriately releasing that would be far better for everyone than turning yourself into a volcano. 
So. Right. And every time during the day when something happens and we dismiss our feelings, that's not a big deal. Let it go. Shrug it off. You know, every time we do that, we're adding a layer on a layer on a layer on a layer and that stuff builds up. And then we finally just can't deal with it anymore as opposed to just allowing ourselves to feel the hurt or the frustration. Doesn't mean we have to go ballistic on anybody, but, but I think we have such a tendency to minimize things that we really don't honor the strong feelings that we have about things. I agree with that. And also, I mean, I think it's good that you recognize and release. It's like letting the air out of the balloon slowly instead of yeah. popping it, right? Yeah. But also, because you are a superhero and this is your superpower, there are all of these great things about being highly sensitive. So there is a flip side of the coin that people can capitalize on. Absolutely. I have a list, actually. You, you well, know, where'd you get your list from? Oh, from you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> then I hope it's a good list. <laughs> well, it should be. You, I got it from you. But these are people, and if, if for those that are the 80%, like myself, when, when I read this list, I instantly knew who these people were. Mm. And it's like a little mini light bulb, you know? Mm. Like, oh, and the first one is the healers, the change makers, the teachers. Not everyone, but I think about it instantly made me um, think of a really, really good friend of mine who's an energy worker. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, I thought, oh, I know. For, and I, I always had that information, but I didn't have a, a way to verbalize it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh my gosh, she's one of my favorite people in the whole world. And I absolutely know she's highly sensitive. And I know that when she is, I talk to her differently and it's totally okay. Mm-hmm. And she does her best work when she's highly sensitive. Well, I want to make a clarification because it's sure. an innate trait. So either you are or you're not. So there may be times when she has things going on where she's feeling more vulnerable or more expressive, but it's not a trait that we can turn on or off. It's something we're born with. Absolutely. And I can see that now if I look back at our relationship, mm -hmm. but it's more noticeable to me sometimes than other times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, some of the traits are loyalty, being conscientious, creative, and details. I mean, mm -hmm. it must be a flood of information. You know, it's so funny because like I have a friend and she'll tell me that her son, you know, like, you know, my kid has a doctor's appointment on Thursday and then Thursday at noon when the kid's appointment will be on the phone. I'm like, doesn't your son have an appointment today? That there are very obscure pieces of information that just hold on in my brain and my son had finals coming up and we kept talking to him. He's like, I think I have a final on. It's like, yeah, you have HCOM at 930 on Friday. Like you've told me that. And I remember. And then there are other things where you think that I'm aging and losing my mind because I just can't keep track of certain details. So some things like really stick and I notice and other things like eh, just not there. But yes, attention to detail. I think of walking through an empty house. Like if mm -hmm. you're purchasing a home, you know, and you walk through the house, I know if, if we watch through it together and we watch back out <laughs> and I said, what did you think? Mm -hmm. You would notice things that were not on my radar. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's exceptional. Yeah. I think for me also, because connection and people is so important that I really respond to people's energy and how I feel around them. And, you know, it's, it's funny with my two sons, like if there's a party, I want to know who's going because that's going to make a difference of whether I'm going to go or not. You know, somebody else, it's like, what are they going to be doing there? Because it's about the activity and not the people. For me, it's about who's going to be there that I'm going to feel connected with. That's going to make me want to go to this thing. 
there's a movie called Joe versus the Volcano and Tom Hanks is in it. And he works in this like basement office with these fluorescent lights that flicker, you know, mm-hmm. and there's this part where he's like, it's the lights. They're just big suck, 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 you know, all the energy out of him. And, and, <laughs> and this movie is old, but I thought, oh my gosh, there are people that are fluorescent light bulbs. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. ever since that, watching him in that scene of that movie, and you must just be that just, that's what just triggered that memory in me. That's how you're kind of how you're thinking about the people. Are there people there to connect you with? Because if there's a lot of fluorescent light bulbs there, mm-hmm. it's not going to be a good time for you. Yeah. And that's heightened for you. Yep. yep. Yeah. So I totally, it's, you got to go back and watch that scene, everybody, the fluorescent light bulb scene in Joe versus the volcano, because that's so, that's so spot on in my mind to how mm-hmm. you would feel more regularly, more often with, at a higher volume. Well, and it's interesting. We just moved one of my kids up uh, into his first apartment, you know, in the town where he's going to college. And we drove two hours that morning because he wanted to get there when the leasing office opened and he's sharing an apartment with three other people. To make a long story short, we got there at 9.15. We didn't start moving stuff in until after 11 because of a number of things that had to do with the roommates. And I found myself getting really pissed off because, you know, the first girl wanted to sleep in and it's like, what the fuck? Like we got up and drove in traffic for two hours and what, you want to sleep and somebody else didn't have their ID. And I had, you know, so that's my expectations. Like, you know, my son and I are there on time. We did what we needed to do to get there. My husband had a meeting. He drove two hours to get there. And even when he got there, they weren't ready to move in. And I had to remind myself, like, I'm here to support my son. It's not about everybody being ready. It's, you know, these are young kids that have different values. It made me very appreciative for the values that my son has. But, you know, I kind of got trapped into that, you know, these stupid little kids. And, you know, I got up and, you know, it's like, I'm here to support my kid. That's, you know, how I kind of pulled myself down to refocus. Can we jump in and talk about you meeting your husband? Sure. How, and a little bit about that relationship and then having kids, because you said you hadn't wanted kids and then you kind of did for a year and didn't tell him. And then like, surprise <laughs> <to> <laughs> yeah, um, we just, it's funny. We just did a podcast episode together about this and I've gotten feedback that people really like it because there are areas where he just really lacks sensitivity. And I think it was really nice for couples. I've had, you know, clients tell me that they and their partner sat and listened to it. And so we also just came out of the closet about this, that we actually met at an Overeaters Anonymous meeting, and I happened to notice whether he was married or not. He was married at the time. We, we were friends for a few years. I was friends with his wife, and um, he moved away, and we corresponded, and he let me know how he felt before he came back, and he had just loved me that whole time. And we, we were always very mindful about, you know, if we, I, I had a, a 12-step meeting at the home that I was living in. And if we were the only one there, we wouldn't hug. Like we were really mindful about not being improper. In retrospect, we had an incredibly high level of emotional intimacy. Like we didn't talk about, like it wasn't flirty. We didn't talk about ourselves, but I was going through a divorce and I would talk to him and cry. And he'd kind of been there in the backyard seeing me go through things all these years as I dated people. He was there watching so when he told me how he felt about me, I had just come back. In fact, the friend Laura that we stopped talking, talking for 20 years, I'd just come back from Europe. I went to visit her and we traveled for three weeks. I came home and thought, I'm so fucked up. No one's ever going to love me. And there was a letter from him telling me how he felt about me. 
And this is someone who had seen me for the last, you know, three years, was it three, five, probably four, four years had seen me go through all of this shit. And I'd gone into the recovery home while I knew him and I went through treatment. And so we started dating when he moved back to San Diego, he was in the military and I, you know, processed and processed with my therapist because I did not want to get divorced again. And then really had to process about having kids and, when I was really clear that I was not going to do it the way that my mom did, you know, I told him and then, then bam, we got pregnant with twins. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, it was, a, it was, a, yeah, it, I mean, it really was. And I really loved babies. That was really a part of parenting that I really enjoyed the babies and the caretaking and the nurturing. I did really well with the babies and I did really well about the time they hit 18. The stuff in between is a little spotty. <laughs> Well, one it's like 17 years. (laughs) You know, but seeing the skills that and and the relationships that I have with the boys now as they're just about ready to turn 19 says we did something right there. And and we really worked on the relationship. You know, one of the things is is one of my kids uh, starting a senior year of high school started to engage in behaviors that violate our family values. And I knew that we could come down and tell him not to do this stuff, but he'd just be sneaking around. And so what we did is we set limits about, you know, if you're going to engage in these behaviors, these are the parameters. You know, this is where you can and can't do this. This is if you're going to do it, this is, you know, how it has to go. And as a result, you know, this kid went off to college and would send me videos and pictures of stuff that was going on. Sometimes I had to say, like, as a mom, I don't want to see that. But it really preserved the relationship, and he's now home for the summer, living at home. And I made it really clear my relationship with you is more important than these behaviors. And because of that, he shares all kinds of information with me that he normally wouldn't. And, you know, we still have rules around these behaviors. It's still something that is not in our family value, but the relationship was more important than telling him to not do it, knowing he'd go ahead and do it anyways. Right. And then resent you and then just not tell you and hide it. And I think that that's always worse. I, I mean, I tell my kids, I don't want you to do X, Y, Z, sure. but if you're going to, yeah, then I'm going to do my part to keep you safe, to keep you healthy, to give you guidance, to give you guidelines, to right. help support you in any way that I can. It does not mean that I'm high-fiving the behavior. It means I'm right. high-fiving you as a person. Yeah. And that's, it's, it, it's tough as a parent to do that. What was it like with you with the rules within the rules? I mean, how, how did you struggle with any of the stuff you did with your mom? Um, yeah, I was too permissive. Um, there's something called childhood emotional neglect. And um, I, I just had a guest on who talked about her book like a million times. And so I don't want to end up being that person. And I feel like I keep mentioning episodes that I've done. It feels relevant. If I, if I sound spammy, I apologize. <laughs> but there's something called a childhood emotional neglect. And it's basically what didn't happen. And so like in my household, there was a lot of childhood emotional neglect because there was no talk about feelings and emotions. And so because there were rules, I didn't learn how to negotiate. So with my kids, I went to the other extreme and wanted to let them negotiate, but really did not learn how to set limits and hold limits with them. And so that was an area of challenge. I think I'm very attachment oriented in my parenting. I think overall it worked out great, but there are areas where my kids lack some skills because I didn't know how to set limits and help them follow through on them. So now that we have a kid home for the summer, I wrote out a three-page contract saying, 
We're doing this because we love you. We failed to teach you some skills. And so this is what we expect of you. This is what we, it's going to look like. This is how we know that you're doing it. And this is the consequence if you don't do it. And so when he went back home, we went over this list with him, had, an, had a discussion. He's been home for a couple of weeks. And so far it's going well. And he does better with structure. He does better with follow through. If I'm clear about what the consequences are, it makes it so much easier. And so, you know, I'm getting a chance to reparent in areas that I had some shortcomings because of my own skills that I didn't get growing up. That's totally normal, by the way. We all come from, you can come from, you know, parents that were married and loved each other and upper middle class and the whole thing and still... I mean, there's kids still end up having issues and we're, there's no such thing as a perfect parent, nor yeah. should there be like we've already talked about. So we, parenting means you're going to feel like you're falling short. Yep. Yep. Fairly often. Well, and the pattern that, you know, we have, and I see this with my husband, I see it with friends who have kids is that, you know, you say, this is what I want from you. The person says, yes, they don't do it. You know, you lose your shit, they apologize. And then you start the pattern all over again, because we don't know how to do those intermediate steps. And so we just keep repeating that pattern. Yeah. Are either of your boys um, highly sensitive? I think they have traits of sensitivity. There's sensory processing disorder, which is not the same as being highly sensitive. One of my kids is very tender. I don't know whether he is or not, but it's interesting when he and his girlfriend were home, we went to do something together and we were talking about my mom who lives with us and my son was saying that he wanted to get a tattoo. I said, are you going to get any more tattoos? He and his twin got the Chinese symbol for twins on their 18th birthday, which I thought was incredibly sweet. I said, are you going to get any more tattoos? He said, I think when Graham's dies, I want to get a tattoo, you know, to memorialize her. And the two of us, you know, our eyes started tearing and my son's girlfriend kind of commented that, you know, he and I tend to be very tender about that. And I said, you really should talk to Grams about that before she dies, because I think that would be really special. So we had a conversation and my mom sees tattoos as, you know, you do, you're defacing your body. So she's like, can you get something engraved? Can you get a watch? And I could see my son struggling. And I said, is it because it's permanent and you can't lose it? And he said, yes you know, that's why he would want to get something. So the three of us talked about, you know, what symbol would represent each one of us. And it was really just very tender and heartfelt. Isn't that great? Yeah. yeah. With working with highly sensitive people and being one, I like to kind of wrap up and end on what, what's the best advice you could give or what's the hug that you would give them verbally? Learn as much as you can about the trait. If you go to Dr. Elaine Aaron's website, it's hsperson.com. There's a self-test there that you can take. And if you take it and you suspect you're highly sensitive, but you don't test within the range, Dr. Aaron suggests to take the child version of the test and to think back to when you were a child, especially for men, because our culture doesn't value sensitivity, so we learn to bury those traits. So learn as much as you can about being a highly sensitive person, try and hang out with other highly sensitive people. And then there's a part, you know, I think that we've internalized so much negative messaging. And I remember watching a dance show where these young kids were in a world competition and they, they didn't win. And one of the judges told them not to cry. And Jennifer Lopez was one of the judges. And she's like, 
babies, you just go ahead and cry. You cry, you get it out. And when you get it out, then you move on. And I see this so common so often where people are, you know, we get those messages even still about, you know, don't cry, toughen up. And it's like, those are real feelings. So, so learning what the negative messaging is that we got, how we've internalized that and being able to change that so that we really see that what we experience are superpowers. And if you're finding that you're stuck, then you know, reach out to a therapist, reach out to um, a coach that works with highly sensitive people. That same website has coaches and therapists that are knowledgeable in the highly sensitive person. You can Google someone. They don't have to be from that website. But the way that you would work with somebody who is highly sensitive is much different than someone who's not aware of the trait because they're probably going to try and get you to be like the other 80% and you end up feeling more invalidated. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was so great, Patricia. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you for taking the time to get naked with us. If you'd like to bear it all with me, get in touch. Your story is unique and valuable. Let's show it off.